The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 225 of The Real Food Real, we share with you an episode from the Keto for Women show, where I am interviewed on all things burning fat, microbiome health, and extending your longevity. You will learn how to reverse the metabolic damage caused by long-term calorie counting, low-fat dieting, and restricted eating, how to optimize your microbiome with an LCHF template, the role of saturated fats and how we got it so wrong, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this episode of The Real Food Real. All right, now let's get into today's interview. We have Steph Lowe, who is a sports nutritionist over in Melbourne, Australia, and she is also the founder of thenaturalnutritionist.com. She is all about real food living for performance. She's really into the low-carb, high-fat world, and so today we're going to talk with her all about her place in that space. Without further ado, here is Steph. All right, Steph, thank you so much for joining me on Keto for Women today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. This will be fun. So for those listening that don't know you, why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself and how you got started in all of this and what you like to chat about? Anything good? Yeah, amazing. Thank you. So I am a sports nutritionist and my company, The Natural Nutritionist, is based in Melbourne, Australia, but we see clients worldwide via Skype or phone. And we certainly have face-to-face clients at our clinic in Sandringham, which is in Victoria. But I guess what sort of started the journey for me was my own personal experience with nutrition. You know, I learned firsthand the importance of real food and how that really could transform someone's life. For me personally, I had a quite an unhealthy relationship with food and I had a lot of mood issues that 
could have been treated conventionally, <laughs> which is obviously our default in the West. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess quite luckily met someone who encouraged me to explore changing the way I ate. And this is like over a decade ago now. And I must admit, I was quite skeptical, but I was pretty desperate. So I was willing to give anything a try. I started by quitting gluten And that for me was a massive 180 degree change in how I was feeling. And it was really the catalyst for me to start to explore what I was eating a little bit further and really dive into JERF, which is just eat real food. Mm -hmm. Because of my own personal experience and how transformational it was, I was really inspired to share that message. So that's when I went back to uni and studied nutrition at a postgraduate level and started my company. So I had those qualifications to be able to share the message and and reach people worldwide that have either similar health issues or quite different because we know how powerful real food is for all health conditions, but also those that are really interested in changing the way they eat. You know, I think we're seeing this beautiful shift in the real food space, especially in the last five years. And I guess the blinkers are off. We're no longer being brainwashed by big food or the grain industry. And I just love the change that we're seeing and that I can play a small role in influencing the way the world eats. Yeah, definitely. And I think it is so interesting how many of us, pretty much everyone, at least that I've talked to in this holistic nutrition space have gotten here because of our own issues and how Mm -hmm. it's just so motivating when we see such change happen with ourselves and especially dealing with these situations for years, these illnesses or diseases or whatever they may be and seeing such a quick turnaround that so often is what drives us then to be like, I got to share this with everybody. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's how you were too. So now that you've been in practice and you have your own clinic and you're seeing a lot of clients and you have probably for a number of years, it sounds like, what are some of the common themes that you see come into your doors that can easily be helped or just see a little bit of improvement by switching the food? Yeah, for sure. I guess there's three probably streams that we definitely specialize in. I mean, my niche is definitely with endurance athletes. So we're seeing a lot of athletes that have been exposed to quite a a conventional approach through the standard Australian or American food pyramid or similar. And definitely those really conventional sports nutrition guidelines would tell us to consume these ridiculous amounts of carbohydrates per hour, And a lot of people are either having huge issues with those particular recommendations, they simply can't tolerate the volumes they've been recommended, or with that prevalence of the real food message, athletes are really understanding that putting all that refined carbohydrate and sugar in their body is not conducive to optimal performance, recovery, and athletic longevity. So we're guiding our athletes to turn things upside down and move away from that conventional model and and become fat adapted or develop that metabolic ability to burn fat for fuel. And I'm sure we can talk more about that, but that's going to start with food significantly. There's obviously training and lifestyle changes that we make as well, but a lot of it comes down to what you choose to put on your plate day to day. Then we see a lot of clients who are looking to change their body composition. So again, in that sort of conventional model, it's very high carbohydrate. So most people have these huge levels of insulin 
all day, every day, which is that fat storage mode. And we've been told to count calories and eat less and move more. And we all know that does not work. And it's a huge fallacy in the health and wellness space. So we teach our clients, our audience, how to optimize their metabolism so they can burn fat. And that can be for a body compositional goal, but ultimately it has some amazing long-term health benefits because we want to keep that insulin low from an anti-inflammatory point of view. And that again comes down to what you eat and how you choose to live. And then thirdly, we do a lot of gut health. So whether that's someone that's purely following a Western approach, or if it's someone that's been doing keto for some time, there's often a few things that are being neglected and, you know, it's different based on the individual naturally, but we like to teach that holistic approach. So we're not just looking at keto or macros. We've got to take a step back and look a little bit broader considering that all disease starts in the gut and so too does all health. It absolutely needs to be a huge priority. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. I love all of that. So let's break down each one of those. I think that'd be really, really nice. Let's go back to those endurance athletes. So there's got to be a lot of pushback, I would think, from people who are in this endurance athlete space and have known for years and years and years that you've got to keep fueling yourself with these carbs and the sugar and the goose packs and all that stuff. And you're telling them the complete opposite. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think initially it was, I'd say probably seven or maybe yeah, six or seven years ago, it was really challenging. Like people who would meet me for the first time would look at me like I'd fallen out of a tree or it was like <laughs> I was speaking another language because, yeah, we've only ever been told to eat the carbs, carb load, take the gels, as you say, and we see this these recommendations of usually it's 60 to 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour. Wow. Yeah. For our Ironman athletes that are training six and seven hours, their races can go for up to 17 hours. It's just, it's phenomenal to think that we ever thought that that was the way forward. Like Mm -hmm. hindsight is a wonderful thing, right? Right. The way I try and I guess, strip things back is to come back to that real food message. You know, nobody can argue that real food is better than something in a packet or a box or that has a mascot. Mm -hmm. So yes, a lot of people are very either brainwashed or they feel like that they're getting performance benefits by following that carbohydrate model. But if you really start to get them to think intellectually about the kind of foods that they're eating and looking at the ingredients of the products that they're consuming on their long rides or runs or whatever the athlete is doing, then they can really start to look at things with, I guess, through a different lens. You need to have been living under a rock to have not have heard the health implications of refined sugar. Right. And I think if we look at all of the products that are, are sold in that really Western space, they are all made of sugar. So how, again, how can that be beneficial to your performance, to your recovery and to your athletic longevity? Like simply put, the athlete's number one goal is to create this beautiful anti-inflammatory environment, right? Mm -hmm. That's how we recover. That's how we're going to get back out there and do that next training session and gain the performance benefits that come with a consistent training program. We're going to avoid those chronic inflammatory injuries 
And ultimately, we're going to be doing the sport that we love for as long as we possibly can, not retiring early because of issues that are related to either a burnout or, yeah, an injury that could have been resolved by addressing the underlying inflammation. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just a different lens. There are a few myths in the endurance space. One of the biggest ones that we often get is that keto or low carb will make me slow or keto will make me lose my top end. And what athletes usually mean by that is, is they don't feel like they've got the same ability to work in that glycolytic system, that anaerobic system. But I truly believe that's just due to either, you know, overtraining, which is a whole nother conversation, or a poorly designed macronutrient or, you know, nutrition plan. Mm-hmm. Because we don't talk about no carbohydrates. You know, that's again another myth that everybody has about the the LCHF or the keto right. space. I hear that all the time. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you've heard it a million times. Yeah. And, you know, me personally, that's what I'm really key on, I guess uncovering with people, you know, there's carbohydrates and there's carbohydrates, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't know that vegetables are carbohydrates and there are some foods that are whole food carbohydrates that do work for some people that are moving more. And especially when there is more intensity involved, you know, your carbohydrate requirements are generally relative to your exercise intensity. So naturally, if you're doing a little bit more glycolytic or anaerobic exercise, you will be needing slightly more carbohydrates. And that's how you keep your glycogen tank full, which is how you keep your top end. So, you know, the natural opposite is true. If you're going too low carb or going too keto, then you'll deplete your muscle glycogen. So you won't have that tank that fuels the high intensity session. So that's where you can feel like you lose your top end. But it's not due to, you know, keto as a whole. It's due to either, you know, being a little bit too extreme or not looking closely enough at what your requirements are on that particular day because it will change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And don't you find that these kinds of athletes also usually have a really easy time getting in and staying in ketosis, even with this additional carbohydrate that they need to to fuel their glycogen stores? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's so many factors, right? But there's Mm -hmm. also, you know, previous history, like whether there is an underlying degree of carbohydrate tolerance or intolerance, genetics play a role, but yeah, exercise intensity, because naturally you're going to utilize those carbohydrates much more efficiently than someone that's either, you know, sitting fairly still, has a sedentary job or preferences more aerobic activity or, you know, things like yoga and Pilates. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating. And and do you th- see that there is a difference in, I guess, the performance of the athlete, whether they are just doing low carb versus actually making sure to get in ketosis? Do you see any change there? That's a really good question, actually. I think probably the myth that I feel in this space is that you need to be in ketosis to be burning fat. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, as long as you get your carbohydrates to the right level for you and obviously balance out the proteins and the fats and, and, you know, fix your gut and all the things that we'll cover, you can definitely still be burning fat and that's what you want to be using, that, that tank, that diesel engine for the majority of the time, you know, definitely anything sedentary during the day and all of the aerobic sessions. 
I just think that as long as you don't take the keto too far, like we always talk about the addition of some whole food carbohydrate mm-hmm. after a high intensity session. So that's in the hour. And so the mistake that people make is that they start to fear certain foods like bananas and sweet potatoes, which I think still have their place as long as they're like timed well. And I guess then, you know, we want to make sure we're taking a step back rather than looking at things too insular because I really don't want people to be afraid of whole foods. Right. Yes. And I totally agree. And I'm the same. I give the same advice, especially for those that are active. Now, can Mm -hmm. you, just for those that aren't necessarily endurance athletes, but do work out and do want to know more about this, can you give some examples of what would be kind of that more aerobic type workout versus the more glycolytic type workout so people can kind of see where they fall? Yeah, for sure. Aerobic can be defined by conversational pace. So that might be a a jog that you're doing with a friend that you would call easy or recovery. And then the same would apply for any, you know, any other kind of cardio, whether it's on the bike or in the pool, your heart rate just needs to be in that aerobic zone. So you can actually, there's a formula that you can use to actually work that out. Obviously it's only helpful if you're tracking your heart rate, Right. but we use Dr. Phil Maffetone's 180 formula. So there are some nuances to it, but quite simply it's 180 minus your age. Let's Mm -hmm. say you're 30, then 150. If you're under 150 beats per minute, that's defined as an aerobic session. And if you're above 150, then that's anaerobic or glycolytic. So it can be lots of different things. As I mentioned, it could be yoga and Pilates. It really can be anything that you enjoy. But yeah, if you're not drinking your heart rate, you need to go off things like conversational pace, or, you know, you might even be a little bit more old school and look at the RPE scale, which is that um, rating of perceived exertion that you might've heard about back in the, back in uni or back in the study days. Mm. Got it. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. So you can really even kind of gauge based on, could you hold a conversation in this pace Mm -hmm. or not? And that would be a good a good way to know. Okay. That's awesome. All right. I love that talk. Now let's move on to this idea of metabolism, because as you mentioned, a lot of people are coming into this keto space, which is great. And I love this, but they're coming into this keto space, having dieted and underfed themselves for years and years and years and years, trying to have this goal, this weight loss goal or fat loss goal, something like that. And in the process have quite often done some major damage to their metabolic rate because of that. And so now we have to kind of back out of that and teach people more about their metabolism and and what they're trying to do to actually get to that goal that they're trying and have been trying for years probably to get to with all these failed attempts, right? And so now we have to really talk more about the metabolism. So how do you approach that with your clients? Yeah, it's a big one. It's really challenging because unfortunately there are a lot of people that have been exposed to that calories in, calories out Mm -hmm. model. And as you say, there's going to be metabolic damage associated with essentially being in some degree of starvation mode for a very long time. So yeah, that's quite challenging. I think initially we've definitely got to have that conversation around like the petrol versus diesel tank. So what I mean by that is, you know, if you're eating more carbohydrate rich foods, 
which you naturally do when you're counting calories, right? Because one, we've been told that fats are so bad for so long. And two, we know they're more than twice the calories than a carbohydrate or a protein. So by default, anything that's low calorie is low fat. And that generally stops your body from being able to burn fat. So you're in that sort of petrol where you're needing to eat quite frequently again, which makes you more bound by your appetite and you've got the blood sugar roller coaster that's associated with that. So mm-hmm. we really need to break that down and start to, you know, teach someone about the benefits of switching that petrol tank over to a diesel engine, which is when you've got the ability to burn fat for fuel. So, you know, the great thing in that space for many people that have come from a diet background is that, you know, they've finally got control of their appetite for the first time in their life. You know, gone are the days of, you know, I used to be there. I used to count down the minutes until it was two hours since my previous meal so Mm -hmm. I could eat again. And when you do keto, as you know very well, when you address the metabolic issues, you can go five or more hours with no hunger, amazing blood sugar control, great satiety, no cravings, and the benefits continue. And I like to sort of explain how that can be a part of the process. Now, you know, you kind of need to experience that firsthand to like believe someone when you've only been doing, you know, eat every two hours to speed up your metabolism myth. But it is a fairly immediate change. Like, you know, fat loss takes time. So it's not the first benefit that you want to be tracking, nor do I want it to be your first goal. By all means, have it as a goal, but you've got to think about those more important goals, like what you can notice straight away. Like, has your energy improved? Are you getting more satiety out of your meals? Are you sleeping better? What's your gut or digestion looking like? And so, just getting them to think a little bit broader about some of the initial benefits rather than getting too stuck on the scales. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, is we naturally need to sort of be a little bit more conservative with their calories. Like we don't calorie count, but we still need to know how much food we're eating, right? So for someone who's been following, you know, that calories in, calories out, which is typically about 1,200 calories a day, you know, I wouldn't put them up at like 1,800 straight away because A, it'd be far too overwhelming for them and B, it'll probably be too much for their body initially. So we have to be a little bit more conservative. So we wouldn't typically dive straight into my standard LCHF macronutrient balance, which is, you know, 60 to 65% fat, but we can definitely work our way there as we address the underlying issues, look at the gut health and essentially heal that relationship with food. Right. Because that's even just to bump it up at all is very hard for someone to really grasp. But that Mm -hmm. has been kind of working on this calories in versus calories out mentality for so long, like we all have. And breaking that, and I know this firsthand and you probably do too, breaking that idea to where you actually do need to fuel your body appropriately. Mm. And you don't see the changes that, you know, if you start severely cutting your calories that you do initially see, you know, you're not losing like five pounds a week, like you can sometimes when you're on this crash diet. And so it's really hard to break that cycle because we're still looking for that immediate gratification. We still have a hard time 
and believing that this is what we actually need to do. So yeah, I think it's really great to kind of slowly work into that, but then also really work on breaking that mentality too, and not just make it all about the food, but find something else that you can focus on. Yeah, definitely. And it is a process. It's not going to happen overnight for someone that's essentially been counting calories and has been afraid of fat for their whole life. Like we're talking decades often. Mm -hmm. So it is a process, but I think the education is a huge part of it because then they understand it more than just being told to eat less and move more, which is essentially is as far as the education used to go. Right. Right. And and there was nothing to back it. And yet we believed Mm -hmm. it (laughs) for some reason. Again, huh? So, okay, that's great. Now let's move on to that third person that you see so often, which is people with gut health issues. And I think that you would agree that this kind of gut inflammation or just even some sort of overgrowths or, you know, microbiome imbalances is just running rampant at this point in our culture and having gut health issues is just so common, but there is a way out. There is something that we can do about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, real food is obviously going to be the foundation. So when we start working with someone who does have either a gut health issue or a goal, we would definitely at least spend the first four weeks with the foundation. Like I always say that you, you know, you don't build a house with the roof first. And I think that we are very quick to look for a magic pill or bypass the basics. And there is no magic pill. I think that most of our health goals and and successes come from being really good at the basics. So we do spend uh, the initial part of the education around real food and teaching them about the maybe the ideal calories and macronutrients, but more specifically how to build your plate. So, you know, what sort of non-starchy veggies, quality proteins and healthy fats you're going to be consuming and if and when those more complex carbohydrates are appropriate. So for me, that's definitely the number one goal. But I guess it's going to be very individual naturally. The Sort of the step after that, in my opinion, is to really focus on what prebiotics we are getting. This is a space that I think is being neglected. Everyone's buying kombucha, getting crazy and fermenting. And don't get me wrong, I think that definitely has a place, but without the right environment, the beneficial bacteria will not grow. So you can be drinking all the ferments or buying all the kombucha or whatever your preference is, but you can still have very little beneficial bacteria if that internal environment is wrong or Mm -hmm. not optimal for that microbiome restoration. So prebiotics are found in the non-starchy veggies like onions, legs, garlic, asparagus, and artichokes. So those five are definitely a priority and they will absolutely fit into anyone's keto template. Some of them have some FODMAP considerations. For anyone that doesn't know what FODMAP stands for, it's an acronym used to describe a group of the fermentable carbohydrates that can cause more typical irritable bowel type symptoms. So there are some considerations there, but other prebiotics come in the form of resistant starch. So this is where people that have taken a bit of a probably too deep dive into keto are unintentionally starving their gut bugs or, I guess, stopping the progression of their microbiome restoration. Mm -hmm. So when you cook and cool white rice, white potato or sweet potato, the structure of the carbohydrate changes significantly. So there's going to be no, like no insulin response associated with that food like it would be if you consumed it 
hot and you can reheat it, which is the good news, but essentially it needs to have gone through that cooling process best to occur overnight. But when you add that food back into the plate or onto the plate, you get this beautiful resistant starch, which essentially bypasses digestion until it gets to the large intestine, which is where those trillions of bacteria that we're trying to support live. So the cooked and cooled white rice, white potato and sweet potato actually have some really amazing gut health benefits. But in the keto space, these are some of the foods that are definitely feared. Mm-hmm. Now, white rice is obviously a grain and not everyone has a tolerance to grain, nor do they want to include them. So just to be clear, that's optional. You could definitely do it all from sweet potato and you might only need like, you know, two to three half cups a week. So remember the insulin response is completely different when you've turned that carbohydrate into a resistant starch. So unless the overall picture is quite imbalanced, you can definitely still stay in keto with the addition of that gut health food. Because it can be just such a small amount even per Mm -hmm. day, you know, a bite or two per day could really still get that benefit. Yeah, anything counts. And it is something to be gradual with, especially if you've now just had an epiphany that you've been eating Mm -hmm. no prebiotics. Um, (laughs) You've got to start gradual because you can get more of those IBS type, the irritable bowel syndrome type symptoms, whether it's gas, bloating or changes in bowel habits. If you have too many prebiotics, that's something to keep in mind that when it comes to gut health, gradual is always best. Right. So that would be good for a person who's kind of been dealing with some, you know, just not feeling all that great in the gut health space, but has been taking their probiotics and eating their fermented veggies and still not seeing a whole lot of benefit. That would be a step to consider. 100%. It's the first thing that you should do. But if you, yeah, you, if you are already doing the probiotics, then yes, make sure you're including those prebiotics so that the probiotics can actually survive. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a very good point. All right. What else do you see that, that goes on quite commonly in, in our guts that we're not addressing that we don't even know exists perhaps? Yeah, I think probably the other angle is, and you touched on this before, our overgrowth. So the interesting thing that I see is people are coming to me and they're all over the, you know, the fermented space and They're having lots of different foods and beverages across a day or week, but they've actually got an overgrowth of a particular strain. Let's say it's bifidobacterium. And if you don't know about that and you're adding in more bifidobacterium, you will make the problem worse. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, coming back to the whole gradual is best, like you know, back in the day, kombucha was a, a beverage that was served in 30 mil shots. And we're now seeing it sold in 330 mil bottles, 1.5 liters. And people are, you know, with all good intention, drinking it every day because it's like a soft drink replacement. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Very tasty, but it's really not something that we need in a lot of volume. It's a yeast. So it can cause a yeast overgrowth and we all know what that looks like. So it's definitely something to be mindful of that you're looking at the diversity. So diversity is a really important subtopic for us because your gut health depends on the diversity of the food that you eat. So that's why we always hear the statement, eat the rainbow, but it's also why it's really important to get creative. Now, 
meal prepping is really important. Don't get me wrong. But if you eat the same thing week in, week out, that's what your gut will look like. It'll be quite low in diversity. Whereas we're wanting to create this beautiful analogy of a rainforest. So thriving with so many different species and plants and this beautiful diversity, which is also dependent on the types of fermented foods or probiotics we're adding. So if you're just adding kombucha, that's what your gut will start to look like versus having a little bit of kombucha, some sauerkraut, maybe some fermented coconut yogurt, obviously including your bone broth or your vegan alternative in potentially a supplement form, you know, then you're creating that rainforest as well. And that's our number one goal. Oh, I love that rainforest mentality. That is such a good, just a good way to figure out how you are kind of setting up your gut health, you know, whether you're being really, really kind of eating the same things day in, day out, which is so common, so, so common, or really getting that diversity that we would want. I think that's such a good way to kind of show the differences that we can do for our own gut health. So now Mm. if this is something that may be an issue for somebody. Do you normally test your clients for gut health issues or is there a way that we can kind of figure this out without testing or seeing somebody? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, my favorite mantra is test, don't guess. Yes, me too. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people have a bit of an epiphany when they think about that intellectually because they realize that they are just guessing what's going on in there and hoping for the best. And unfortunately, I see so many microbiome tests with very little beneficial bacteria in people who are all over the gut health space and the fermentation and the probiotics and so on. So I'm not saying it's a waste of time because there are still benefits to those beneficial bugs passing through the gastrointestinal tract, but essentially it's not creating the desired result and you don't know about it. And there's obviously so many implications. So, you know, what we haven't discussed is the role of these microbiome. I don't know how much you guys have covered it in the past, but really simply, you know, their main role is to digest our food. So they allow you to break down the food and access nutrients from the food that we eat. They obviously play a huge role in our immune system, knowing that 80% of our immune system is located in the gut. And they have a massive role in the production of our neurotransmitters, our happy hormones like serotonin. So if we just think about those three areas, if our gut health is poor and we don't know about it, we can be having these unexplained mood issues. We can definitely be having immune challenges like being sick or getting sick as soon as we're exposed to someone that's a little bit unwell. Or we can have nutrient deficiencies even when we're eating really well. So it can often be the explanation for these areas that are otherwise a little bit unknown for some people as to why that's going on. So I love doing microbiome testing. It's a simple stool test that you usually send off for analysis in the lab and then the report is sent to you or your practitioner And it's really important to work with an experienced practitioner who can identify the, I guess, the imbalances, but also the priorities. Most people have many different imbalances to deal with and going in and bombing it and trying to do everything at once will end in tears quite literally. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that we look at what the priorities are and it's like a step change approach to restoring the microbiome. So understanding what's most important 
and putting a plan together to address that and add on over time. It's about a six month journey Mm -hmm. and you really can't rush these things. So it's it's important again, gradual, we keep coming back to that (laughs) gradual approach. Yeah. And so important to actually take the time and even the financial implication to get tested. If you have any interest even, or any sort of gut health concern or anything, because you really can find out so much more about your health and your gut health. And it is so important for the rest of your health and your body and just everything, your mood, like you mentioned, everything. So it really does make a huge difference when you can find that out about yourself. So I think that that's really important that you note how much you can learn just from these simple tests. Absolutely. So we've talked about these three kinds of people that you see most often. I would say most of the people listening right now can see themselves in at least one of those. So Mm -hmm. I want to kind of group them all together now and just hear how maybe in general, what you do to like, do you recommend keto for all these people or how do you determine who it's good for, who it's not good for? Are there any special considerations we need to know for any of these groups? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it kind of depends on what your definition of keto is. Like we have slightly, like I guess more sliding scales when it comes to the macronutrient recommendations. So someone that, like if we go back to our third group, the gut health group, in most cases they need to be keto more than anyone because they're dealing with an overgrowth that is usually created from a high-carbohydrate or high-sugar diet. And we obviously really want the anti-inflammatory benefits while we're working, especially through that initial acute healing phase where there is a lot of inflammation and potentially leaky gut. Mm-hmm. Now, there obviously you can have huge gut health issues and still be trying to do endurance exercise. <laughs> right. It wouldn't be my preference, but um, <laughs> I think the healing journey should be the first priority. But if it is someone that is doing more anaerobic activity, then they would be having more resistant starch. So not necessarily any other carbohydrates like fruit at this point in time because of the maybe the potential overgrowth that we're dealing with, but more resistant starch to give them the ability to top up their muscle glycogen and recover from those sessions, but still keeping their carbs pretty low while they're focusing on that healing journey. Endurance athletes, I mean, hopefully most endurance athletes are doing about 80% of their work in the aerobic zone. So that's that conversational pace that we were talking about earlier. So they wouldn't need anything more than the non-starchy veggies, quality proteins and healthy fats. So that would definitely fit into like a macronutrient split of 15% carbs, 20% protein and 65% fat but we might need to just tweak that a little bit if and when they're moving into a more high intense block or closer to race day when there are some of those key sessions where naturally we'd be putting some carbohydrates in that post-training meal. And then our third group was, I mean, fat loss, absolutely. (laughs) Again, it comes down to what sort of exercise they're doing, but these are the people that um, in general have a greater degree of carbohydrate intolerance. So if we think about the biggest example of carbohydrate intolerance is type 2 diabetes, 
And then we go all the way up to this spectrum where you've got someone who's usually a male who's very lean and doing a lot of exercise. They would be at the sort of top end of the, you know, we'd still put them in LCHF, low carb, high fat, but they would be able to tolerate so many more carbohydrates than anyone else on that spectrum. And fat loss, if you're overweight, you're generally down towards that bottom end of the carbohydrate intolerance spectrum. So naturally your carbs need to be lower to heal that underlying carbohydrate intolerance. But over time, you know, you can reverse that. That's the great news. It's definitely reversible, just like type 2 diabetes is, provided it hasn't been completely unmanaged for decades, of course. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think absolutely keto is amazing because naturally we want those insulin levels to be low, which teaches our body to burn fat. And obviously initially we can burn dietary fat, but eventually we'll be burning our body fat for fuel. And that's the best way to achieve those body compositional goals without any starvation or even really needing to count calories at all. Right, which is so nice and so freeing. That's what I say about my keto journey is this really is the first time ever in my life that I felt free around food because Mm -hmm. because I have that new mentality, which is so, so nice. And I want more people to have that for sure. So then it seems like within this, of course, you would also promote the ability to kind of find your own version and maybe tweak Mm -hmm. what you're doing to find what works for you. Is that something that your clients really are able to do? 100%. I think this is a great point. Like it's really great to work with a practitioner and I highly recommend that for someone who's looking for, I guess, that whole holistic, well-rounded approach. But at the end of the day, you're the one that's living and breathing it. You know how you feel after a different meal. I think a little bit of trial and error or tweaking can give you a lot more insight as to whether things could be improved, but also remembering that it is an evolution. So what you start with probably won't be what you do more longer term, especially if you are dealing with more of an acute health issue or gut health issue. So it's important to look at things with that evolutionary lens. And yeah, I think that trial and error will give you a lot of insight into how particular foods are tolerated by the body, but also whether you need less carbs or more carbs or more protein or whatever it might be. Right. Definitely. Do you have any people that come into your clinic that when you tell them to eat more of a low carb, high fat, I know we talked a little about the fat fear and stuff that Mm -hmm. just think you're crazy. Most people that are coming to me would be well aware of what my approach is. They already know that that's what they're going to get into. Exactly. And that's why they're here. Right. But I do a lot of corporate presentations and I think to be a little bit cliche, generally in the corporate space, it's more like a cereal sandwich pasta kind of right. standard food pyramid. And, right. and that can be a little bit more challenging, definitely quite rewarding once they intellectually understand what cereal is and what toast is and, and how that is affecting their blood sugar control and causing them to crave sugar at three o'clock and that vicious cycle continues. So yeah, there's definitely more challenges there, especially in the saturated fat space. You know, mm-hmm. for the last five decades, saturated fats in particular have been demonized. They've been blamed for cardiovascular disease and increased mortality. And, you know, that's obviously been clearly disproven in the literature since around about 2011. But it's, again, for many people, all they know. So hearing from a nutritionist that they can have grass-fed butter for the first time, they look Mm -hmm. at you like you've literally fallen out of that tree. So (laughs) it takes time to break down those barriers. But if we come back to that real food message 
And, you know, butter to margarine is a perfect example because we all know why margarine was created, right? It was to keep that, I guess, ingredient in a low-fat era and to make a lot of money for big food. Right. When we were told to demonize foods like butter when, you know, we went to our doctors or whatever that conversation was all those years ago. And when someone understands a how margarine is made, what it looks like before it's dyed to get on the shelf, so on and so forth, you don't need a degree in nutrition to understand that. Mm-hmm. It just takes time again to break down some of those myths, especially if we're talking decades of always knowing the other way. Yeah. And like you said, you really, no one can dispute the fact that real food is best. So if we start there, Mm -hmm. you know, I think we can slowly start building on. And of course, everyone listening to you today does not think you're crazy. They totally get it. We're all about the keto, (laughs) but it's nice to hear specific people that this would be good for and things that you see and nuances there. So I'm glad that we had that chat. So Mm -hmm. tell everyone a little bit more about what you're working on now, where they can find you if they want to learn more about what you do. Thank you so much. Yes. So my online home is thenaturalnutritionist.com.au um, and my I probably mostly hang out on Instagram at thenaturalnutritionist. And we're just about to launch a 10-day workshop for that is titled actually Fat Adaptation for Athletes. Mm. And very shortly after that, my online program LCHF Endurance is launching. It's a 12-week program for athletes who want to learn about real food, how to transform their metabolism and become a fat-adapted athlete. So we've already got a beautiful community online and you can find out more and join us at lchfendurance.com.au. And then last but not least, I have a book coming out November 27. It's called Low Carb, Healthy Fat Nutrition. It's been my labor of love. It's, I guess, what I've been doing at the National Nutritionist for the last seven years, working in that LCHF space. And we put together this amazing book that has so much education around a lot of the things that you and I have discussed today, meal plans, including those that want to lose body fat, those that are looking to use LCHF or keto for type 2 diabetes management, and definitely our endurance athletes who are looking to become fat adapted. And we have over 150 real food recipes that are all on the plate within about 15 to 20 minutes. So I'm so excited to share that with everybody. Wow. You've been busy. (laughs) (laughs) Been a big year. I'm also having a baby. So that's my Oh my gosh. Wow. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So all good things for people to go check out and all in one place. And we'll make sure to have that listed in our show notes for this episode so people can find it easily. But Steph, thank you so much for being here and sharing your knowledge. And it's been great chatting with you. Thank you. I've had so much fun. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. See ya. And thanks again to Steph Lowe for being here on the Keto for Women show today. You can find more from her at thenaturalnutritionist.com or the National Nutritionist on Instagram. And you can find more from me at seanminer.com and on Instagram at seanminer, Facebook, seanminerhealth. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. 
together we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.